This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode of For Real is sponsored by Saga Boy by Antonio Michael Downing. Tracing Antonio Michael Downing's journey from the tropical forests of Trinidad to the stark landscape of rural Canada, as well as that of his vibrant personal musical metamorphosis, this is a poignant memoir of overcoming, belonging, and becoming one's own self. Growing up as a clever will for boy in a tiny village in the tropical forests of Trinidad, Antonio Michael Downing is steeped in the legacies of his scattered family, the vibrant culture of the island, and the weight of its colonial history. But following his grandmother's death, everything changes. He's sent to live with his evangelical aunt in rural Canada, where they're the only black family in the community. Isolated and longing for home, he begins a decades-long journey to transform himself through music and performance. In his mid-30s, increasingly addicted to escapism, attention, and sex, Downing realizes he has become a saga boy, a Trinidadian playboy archetype like his father and grandfather before him. When his choices land him in a jail cell, Downing must face who he has become. Already hailed by early reviewers as eloquent, entertaining, and heart-wrenching, Saga Boy is a triumphant book that explores family, identity, and blackness through the perspective of an innovative storyteller. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. Recording this week's episode on Thursday, September 9th. Hello, Alice. How are you today? I'm swell. How are you? I am tired, but doing all right. It is the longest four-day week I feel like I've had in a while. Doesn't it? I had to check with someone. I was like, was our four day week last week? Yeah, it's been, you know, it just, it's, it's a time, but, but otherwise I'm good. Tell me, tell me what you have been doing. I have been watching a few programs on television. <laughs> One of them is Bachelor in Paradise on ABC. We, this is relevant for a couple of reasons. The primary one is that we have done a Bachelor themed episode mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, of this show. And so, okay, Bachelor in Paradise this season, if you have never watched The Bachelor or any of its associated franchises, you should watch Bachelor in Paradise this season because it's so good. Everyone is bananas because of COVID. Like they've just been alone <laughs> for too long. And all this stuff is happening that's never happened before. And uh, Chris Harrison is gone. So they're just trying all this new stuff. There's a ton of people. Basically, they take reject Bachelor and Bachelorette contestants and they dump them on a beach together. And they're like, they play a game of musical chairs where you have to be coupled up at the end of the week or you're out. It's so amazing. So the thing, I'm not going to spoil it, but there are two, not one, but two couples there for the wrong reasons. And it's just like compelling television oh i'm so excited anyway that sounds very exciting uh i've been watching a lot of tv but i also actually finished two books that i have talked about on the podcast before that i wanted to follow up on so the first one is the quiet zone unraveling the mystery of a town suspended in silence by stephen kersky which is a book about this community in rural west virginia that is part of the national radio free zone so they have they're not supposed to have any cell phones or wi-fi or anything like that And I finished it, and it is much more bizarre, that whole area, than the book even suggests in the descriptions. There's like a neo-Nazi compound, and 
there's all these people there that are worried about the effects of electrical energy on that limb. And it's just a very interesting, like, deep dive of a book um, into this, like, one very specific place. So uh, I liked that one. And the other one is Paradise, One Town Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire by Lizzie Johnson, which I feel like I must have talked about in new books, but it is a story of the 2018 campfire in California that destroyed the town of Paradise, California, and killed 85 people. And it is, it is incredible. It is an incredible work of journalism. Um, Lizzie Johnson was a San Francisco Chronicle reporter at the time of the fire. And so she was on the ground right away and clearly has spent a ton of time there getting to know families and people who are affected and just really like does an incredible job telling their stories and also like contextualizing why California is having so many more wildfires, which has to do with like utilities irresponsible utilities and also climate change. It's just, it's really good. So Quiet Zone and Paradise, both books that I read and enjoyed and recommend. Well, those seem a little more relevant perhaps than my comment. (laughs) I would like to point out the running theme there is uh, books about towns on opposite coasts of the United States. Yes. Yes, that's true. So for this week's episode, we are super excited that we're doing uh, a first for our podcast, which is we are doing an interview with an author. We have never had a guest author on before, so this is very exciting for us. Uh, the author we have the chance to interview is Mary Roach. Uh, her new Woo! book, yes, she, she's so cool. Uh, her new book Fuzz is out on September fourteenth. So today, when you're listening to this, so we're going to this week do some new books, and then we are going to jump into an interview that we recorded with Mary a couple of weeks ago. So we're so excited; it's really fun. Um, so definitely stick around for that. I would call that interview relatively short and a very good time. Yes, is how I would sum it up. It was a fun time. I agree. Uh, she was basically the best person to interview. Uh, yes. Just such a delight. And so many stories. So many stories. Anyway, uh, let's talk about our first sponsor, which is uh, the new book STEM Like a Girl, published by BDL. Uh, STEM Like a Girl gives girls ages 8 to 12 the knowledge and confidence to become future problem solvers and leaders. This is a fully illustrated book. It has 15 hands-on STEM-based experiments that kids can do at home, uh, which is great (laughs) because of the current times. It also profiles 35 inspiring girls who have actually done these experiments. So it's like, here's what you can do. Here's how it is possible via example. Author, biotech engineer, and mom, Sarah Foster, founded the STEM Like a Girl organization after noticing girls in her kids' classroom hanging back from science activities. So in her first book, this one, Sarah provides the step-by-step instructions for these projects, which are like uh, extracting DNA from a strawberry, amazing, or mastering chemistry to create homemade fizzy bath bombs. I mean, okay, if you know a child, I feel like Mm -hmm. you should just get this for them. It's so cool. I want to do these experiments. You could read it for fun or use it as like a DIY book. And by you, I mean you by yourself or maybe with a child. I mean, I might get it. I don't have kids. <laughs> uh, again, that is STEM, S-T-E-M, Like a Girl, published by BDL. Thank you for sponsoring. That does sound super fun. That's going on my list for uh, the holidays and upcoming birthdays. Oh, good call. 
So we are going to skip nonfiction in the news this week and jump straight into new nonfiction because there's a ton of it out in September and we wanted to make sure to get to talk to about at least a couple of them today. So uh, my first pick for new nonfiction this episode is Three Girls from Bronzeville, a uniquely American memoir of race, fate, and sisterhood by Dawn Turner. And this book came out September 7th from Simon & Schuster. And basically like... I'm just going to say the description of this, and it's basically everything that I want to read in a book. So uh, the story is about three girls, uh, Dawn, her sister Kim, and Dawn's best friend Deborah, who all grew up in the Bronzeville section of Chicago. So Bronzeville is home to a really vibrant, or was home to a really vibrant black community. It was one of the places in Chicago where many of the people who came north during the Great Migration settled, and so they grew up in this neighborhood that Dawn was tall and studious. Her sister Kim was really headstrong. Uh, Deborah was, quote, already prom queen pretty by third grade. And so they were really close friends. They grew up together. And then um, when they got into like middle school and into their teens, they sort of separated. And so they, as the daughters of the Great Migration, they had like all these opportunities and freedoms that other, their parents and grandparents never really had, but they also lived in kind of a a difficult place. And so this book is a reported memoir about Dawn and how her life went and then um, what happened to Kim and what happened to Deborah as they grew up and into their 20s. And I haven't gotten very far, so I can't tell you what specific trigger warnings there are for this book, but I, I sense that there are going to be several related to, I think, drug use and and a murder, but I don't really know exactly how that all is going to play out. But I, I just love stories like this, and I particularly love the like twining of these three girls' stories to try and tell some bigger stories about what it is like to grow up in this community. So that is Three Girls from Bronzeville, a uniquely American memoir of race, fate, and sisterhood by Don Turner. Oh, yeah, that one looks so good. Mm-hmm, it does. I started it, have not gotten very far. So thank you for highlighting that, Kim. Um, my first new pick is I would like to point out the number one new release in automation engineering. <laughs> so we can all be excited about that. Uh, it is arriving today from factory floor to front door. Why everything has changed about how and what we buy by Christopher Mims. I frequently do not think about the source of the items that I use and how they got to me seemingly by magic. I asked my brother once how cell phones work and he said, cell phone gnomes. And I said, great. Um, So feel like I should be a little more curious about that. In this book, Mims is the Wall Street Journal technology columnist. And he basically charts a product's journey from manufacturer to like your door and uh, is looking at e-commerce. So, you know, this world where we, it says, oh, this is arriving today. And it's like, oh, that was very fast. How did that happen? So he picks a USB charger as kind of like the object that he tracks. And it travels 14,000 miles to North America. It takes like a barge um, from Southeast Asia across uh, the Pacific Ocean. And then it is housed in a shipping container. It gets transferred by this giant crane onto this cargo ship. And, uh, you know, then just sort of gets like trucked through uh, to its destination. And there's just so many steps and so many things happening for so many items that I'm really happy that someone has decided to kind of look into, you know, how does this happen? What, how has this evolved to be this way? Because it evolved pretty quickly. If uh, we, anyone remembers what it was like before things were this way. So basically, 
Oh, he looks at an Amazon warehouse, like the automated warehouses, and also kind of how that affects labor and the shifts in human labor practices that have been happening, and looks at is there uh, how much vulnerability is in this system? How resilient is it? Who shoulders this burden? And what is it going to mean if things become fully automated? And like, you know, when will we maybe get there if we will? So it's just a lot of, lot of questions, a lot of things to consider in this book, but also, again, looking at kind of the nuts and bolts of the process. So really interested in this. Again, that is Arriving Today from Factory to Front Door, Why Everything Has Changed About How and What We Buy by Christopher Mims. That sounds super fascinating. I love the idea of like taking a thing and then following it and using that to tell a bigger story. That is such a cool idea. Is that like your your journalist background there just yes, pinging? Yes, it 100% is. I love it. And like a USB charger is such a good one too because it's like so – like I have like 12 of them sitting around my house, you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't think anything about going online and ordering one, but seeing how it got here, that's fascinating. Yeah. All right. So uh, my next pick is one that actually reminded me a little bit of you, Alice, as I was looking into it. Um, The book is called Codename Badass, The True Story of Virginia Hall by Heather Demetrios. Uh, And this is actually a young adult nonfiction book. It's uh, targeted for ages 14 and up. And it is about Virginia Hall, who was a World War II uh, super spy, basically. She was an American, and but the State Department wouldn't let her be a spy. And so she went and joined and became a spy for the British. She helped arm and train the French resistance. She organized sabotage missions. But there was a notorious German Gestapo commander who was trying to get her, but she uh, avoided him. And so uh, this is a biography of Virginia Hall, starting from when she was a kid, um, her childhood summers milking goats, her time playing field hockey, and then eventually becoming the most wanted spy by the Gestapo. And so I didn't get to read a lot of this one, but it is very um, lighthearted. It's very conversational. It's very fun uh, in the way that it's written, which I think makes sense since it's a history book for teenagers. But uh, it looks really cool. The like cover is awesome. And it has a lot of really neat like illustrations and stuff inside of it. So uh, this sounds like, I don't know, just like right up my alley, but also like cool women, which reminded me of you, Alice. So Hooray. that is Codename Badass, The True Story of Virginia Hall by Heather Demetrios. Yeah, that sounds really good. Uh, thank you for thinking of me when it comes to <laughs> women in history. It's my main goal. My main other pick for new releases, which as Kim said, there are so many new releases mm-hmm. in September. If you would like to get a more complete list, you can subscribe to the True Story newsletter where we do Ooh. new releases on Wednesdays. Nice. Kim does the Friday newsletter and it's very good. <laughs> I just just want to put that out there. Um, okay. My other pick is, uh, I talked about this in our kind of like nonfiction we were looking forward to for the second half of 2021, but I wanted to highlight it again because now it's out. So, White Space, Black Hood, Opportunity Hoarding and Segregation in the Age of Inequality by Cheryl Cashin. Cashin is a Georgetown law professor who has written a number of books uh, on racial issues and uh, particularly previously I know about uh, Loving versus Virginia. And here uh, talks about how politicians and uh, people at large propagate ghetto myths to justify racist policies that concentrate poverty in the hood and create high opportunity white spaces. So when they say white space, black hood, it's about this 
she says a residential caste system, which, uh, you know, was also the result of redlining and all of these policies that were very purposely installed. I really love her phrase opportunity hoarding that she talks about, um, which is one of the things that, you know, sort of like maintains this residential caste where opportunities are kept from black citizens and people living in these in these neighborhoods and therefore sort of like keeping them entrenched within this system. This is uh, the result of nearly two decades of research in cities like Baltimore, St. Louis, Chicago, New York, and Cleveland. I forget if I mentioned this when I talked about it before, but Chicago, I believe I read that the term hyper segregation was coined about Chicago. Our North and South side are extraordinarily segregated. So she says that uh, geography is now central to American caste and that poverty-free havens and poverty-dense hoods would not exist if the state had not designed, constructed, and maintained this physical racial order. Uh, She then talks about how we can get rid of these state-sanctioned processes and change how society sees people who live in these poor Black neighborhoods. And it's just like, oh my gosh, right? Like, (laughs) this is like Mm -hmm. such, this is why I wanted to talk about this book again. It's extraordinarily relevant. And she says so many good things in ways that are obviously like way cleverer than I ever can. (laughs) So I'm just so impressed. Um... Okay, again, that is White Space, Black Hood, Opportunity Hoarding, and Segregation in the Age of Inequality by Cheryl Cashin. That, uh, yeah, I'm really glad you talked about that one again. That's a really good, it's a really, it sounds really good and really interesting. And the cover's good. I just, you know, I always like that. <laughs> That's always important to us. Yeah. So I have two other quick mentions that I wanted to just bring up again. They're books that I talked about in our preview episode that are out now. The first one is Beautiful Country, a memoir by Qian Julie Wong, uh, which is a memoir about a young woman, a Chinese immigrant in the United States that is getting a ton of buzz uh, lately that I can see online. The other one is We Are Not Broken by George M. Johnson, which is another memoir. Uh, They wrote a previous memoir, All Boys Are Blue. Um, And so this is a kind of a follow-up about their siblings and other young male friends growing up together, uh, which also looks really great. Uh, And then the last quick book I wanted to mention is... Uh, called Chasing the Truth, A Young Journalist's Guide to Investigative Reporting, which is an adaptation of Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy's book, She Said, but specifically targeted to young journalists um, and talking about investigative reporting. Uh, the adapter is Ruby Shamir, um, and I haven't gotten to look at this one at all, but I loved She Said, and I love the idea of A Young Journalist's Guide to Investigative Reporting. So I wanted to make sure to mention that also. Yeah, those all sound great. Yes. So with that, we will uh, share our second sponsor. And then when we come back after that, it will be our interview with Mary Roach. So our second sponsor this week is TBR, Book Riot subscription service offering reading recommendations personalized to your reading life. Do you want great new nonfiction books to read, but you feel overwhelmed by publishing buzz? Let us help. Tell TBR about your reading likes and dislikes, what you're looking for, and then sit back while a bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email, so there's an option for every budget. Sign up takes just a few minutes. You answer a couple of questions about what you like to read and what you're looking for. You can link up to your Goodreads profile if you have one, and then you are done. TBR subscribers are matched to bibliologists based on those requests. Each TBR delivery contains three titles, either as recommendations or three new hardcovers, and you'll receive a new shipment every three months. So if you're interested, you can go to mytbr.co to sign up today. That's mytbr.co. 
All right, listeners, we are so excited to be speaking with author Mary Roach today about her new book, Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law, which is out September 14th from W.W. Norton. Hello, Mary. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, hi there. Thanks for having me. Um, we're so excited to be talking to you. So since this podcast is coming out on September 14th, most I think most listeners won't have had a chance to read the book at all yet. So could you give a kind of a quick summary or elevator pitch about what Fuzz is all about? I sure can. Yep. This is, it's kind of a book about wildlife crime prevention. Uh, in other words, um, we have wild animals doing their thing out in the world, eating and making nests and crapping and doing the things that they do. But sometimes they do that in people's backyards or their homes. And that can be a problem. That can be a conflict, uh, sometimes a deadly conflict. So we can't expect animals to read the law, follow <laughs> the law. We can't just give them a ticket or, you know, arrest them. So what do we do? Uh, so it's a, it's essentially about the science of human wildlife conflict, which I didn't know was a science until I started this book. That's fantastic. Uh, and you say in your introduction that the idea of the book came from a strange 1906 book you found, The Criminal Prosecution and Capital Punishment of Animals. So I was wondering, where did you find this book? I don't even remember where I came across this book. I, I think somebody mentioned it to me because I had originally gone off into the topic of wildlife forensics, but the uh, with with but animals as the victims because I was interested in the forensics of poaching and things like that, and and how to tell a counterfeit tiger penis from a real tiger penis. I was like, ooh, <laughs> this is cool. And they, I could <laughs> tell you how to do that. It's very easy, but we don't need to go into tiger penises here. But so I was looking originally at. <laughs> wildlife crime, like where wildlife are the victims. And then it turns out legally, I can't tag along on any cases. I can't do what I like to do, which is be there on the scene and, and with researchers and with professionals. So I kind of turned it around. What if wildlife were the perps, the perpetrators and people were the victims, even though obviously it's crime. I'm using crime loosely. These animals don't, you know, they don't follow the law and they don't, mm -hmm. we can't expect them to know what we would like them to do. So uh, so that's kind of uh, how it evolved. And this book, uh, you had originally asked me about this very odd book. I think somebody told me about it when they heard what I was looking into. And uh, so I bought a copy and because it, it, you can still get it. Still, It's still in print and it's so bizarre. In the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, there were actually people would, uh, even insects would be summoned to court and, and they'd be like, they're told you will be assigned legal <laughs> representation and they'd figure out, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll have to figure out, you know, what will happen with the insects. They would sometimes hang like a pig that killed a child. There, there would be a trial and the pig would be hung in the public square. It was a very strange uh, approach to human wildlife conflict. And well, not, they weren't all wild animals. Uh, so anyway, that book got me also sort of thinking, well, what? okay, this is how people used to deal with it. Not the best way. Uh, uh, let's look at like, what does science bring to the table? Like what, what, what are some better ways to deal with human wildlife conflict and kind of how to prevent these things from happening in the first place? Because, you know, often it doesn't go well for the people or the animals. That's really fascinating. That's amazing. I, I looked up that book uh, because I love I love sort of turn of the century weird books and it's, <laughs> yeah. it's on Project Gutenberg. So yes. if people want to check it out, it's available online. It is. I Yeah. I talk about this case where there were caterpillars that were eating the lettuce or some, whatever the crops in this village in northern Italy. 
and the town fathers went out and like put summons that they they on, on trees they posted this summons saying caterpillars are to report in court we will assign legal representation on this date you know and of course by that point they'd pupated and become butterflies and but so uh, but but I was like wow really you guys did that fascinating. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, that's so weird. I'm really fascinated by the animal forensic thing you mentioned kind of at the beginning of the answer, like the forensics of investigating crimes against animals. Were there like any like rabbit holes you went down with that before you realized it wasn't going to be quite the kind of topic for a book you wanted? Oh yeah. I went down the tiger penis (laughs) rabbit hole. I actually flew to the lab, this woman, Bonnie Yates, I think she's retired now, but I I flew up to, it was up in um, Oregon and I spent an afternoon there and she brought out all these dried penises. And, you know, if you, you, you look at a bunch of dried animal penises and she's like, okay, which ones would you use as a virility uh, erectile performance booster? Well, you'd go for like the deer, the horse, the cow, cause these are big, these are really impressive organs. The tiger penis is tiny. Like a tiger penis literally is the size of its claw. It is <laughs> short. And I, I mean, it's dried. Maybe it lost a little volume in the drying. These are dried penises, but still not very impressive. Not the kind of thing you want to serve somebody in a soup and go, look, this will make you <laughs> potent and manly. Uh, so incredibly, almost almost all of the penises that they, you know, the, the counterfeit, because it's, it's illegal to, 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 to kill mm-hmm. tigers for medicinal purposes. So all of the penises that they've confiscated and, and brought into the lab, they're not tiger. They're deer, horse, cow. <laughs> uh, so that's a good thing for tigers. But anyway, uh, I can tell you, you got to kind of like carve little barbs into it to make it look like a tiger penis because tigers and other cats, I think have these, it sort of stimulates the female animal inside. So she'll ovulate, I think is what happens anyway. They, so people, there's a little cottage industry. There's people. And I really was like, I want to go and sit with the people who are making fake tiger penises, like carving little barbs in Asia mm-hmm. where this is done. Uh, but I didn't get anywhere. <laughs> anyway, that was my dream. That was my dream. <laughs> that's, that's so amazing. That yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it was. It, yeah. Are there any um, surprising stories, jobs, or incidents that you discovered while researching the book that actually made it in? Like once you pivoted more to the animals as criminals, like what is one maybe surprising anecdote that you can share? Oh gosh, every chapter uh, has some unusual anecdotes. I mean, they're, they're, you know, I, I talk about a whole range of crimes and, you know, in quotation marks, because obviously animals don't follow our laws, mm-hmm. but there are, I know it's everything from murder and manslaughter and home invasion all the way to like jaywalking and trespassing and vandalism. I went to the Vatican because they had this weird situation where uh, the day before Easter, they set up this for the outdoor mass that the Pope says every Easter. They set up this elaborate floral display, 6,000 daffodils, roses in the back, and just this incredible display. And a couple of years back, gulls came in two hours before they opened it up to the public and just threw things around, knocked over the <laughs> pots. It was just this like wanton vandalism. And the florist is like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. And he's like scrambling to set it up and to um, you know, replace everything. So uh, the next year, they brought in a guy with a uh, a laser scarecrow, like a, sort of like a monochrome laser light show or disco kind of thing. That so it's like flashing around and to scare off the gulls. So I was there at the Vatican Easter eve, the night before Easter Mass, and the morning when they were setting up the uh, 
flowers and the lasers. So it was it was quite high drama to see if the gulls would come and do it again. But it seemed to it seemed to work the laser scarecrow. So that was kind of you know any any opportunity to go to Vatican City is kind of an interesting. I've never been there before, so that was kind of interesting. I saw the Pope's compost heap. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't go. I didn't see the you know all the art and the jewels in the Vatican Museum, but I did see the the papal compost heap inside Vatican City. I wonder what the gulls did to, well, I guess what the Vatican did to anger the gulls. But moving <laughs> on, when uh, in the book you talk about you visit the Asola Bati, excuse me if I'm butchering that, wildlife sanctuary in Delhi, and you decide to just sort of show up in order to try to get into the monkey area, which is normally closed to the public. Uh, how often would you estimate the just show up and ask approach works for you? Oh, uh, I'm a big believer in show up and ask because uh, when I did Packing for Mars, uh, a couple of the space agencies said no to things. Like there was a NASA wanted to do a, they were doing a cadaver test, you know, to make sure if the capsule comes down sideways and the person, you know, will the the space suit kind of smash the person's arm? What will happen? They couldn't use normal crash test dummies because it's a different kind of setup. Anyway, they were doing a cadaver test. I'm like, great, I need to be there. I'm the stick person. Come on. So- I wrote a book about this and they were like, no, no, we're really uncomfortable with this. And the researcher who was at Ohio State, he goes, Mary, just show up. So I did. I just showed up. And the researcher was like, oh, hello, who are you? Oh, I'm Mary Roach. And they're like, Mary Roach. (laughs) And they run, they literally run down to the, where the person is wiring the cadaver. And they're like, don't speak to her. And they call public affairs. And the woman at public affairs goes, Mary Roach is there? Oh, for God's sakes, just talk to her. (laughs) So- that worked. And that happened in Japan as well. They changed their mind on me. I'm like, you know what? I have a ticket and I'm coming. So you're just going to, hopefully we can have some meetings and I can make you feel comfortable about this, but I'm going to come there. Bye. <laughs> uh, so I did. So, so um, every now and then, and it's really, it's situations where there's really no way around it because you're just getting the runaround. You're getting bureaucracy. And in India, in Delhi, uh, you can get a lot of bureaucracy. You can. It's very hard to get to the right person. Uh, they don't return the emails always. I mean, not just India, you know, anywhere with a bureaucracy. So the interpreter that I was working with, uh, she agreed to just drive down there with me and just see what we could do. And and she just went up to everybody, said, "Oh, we're trying to get out to where the monkeys are." And there was this guy who's like, "Oh, I'm going out there. I uh, I'm working in the." Um, it was the plant department. He's like, yeah, I need a, I need a lift. I'll take you out there. I used to work with the monkey. So it was great. It was like, we've sort of stumbled onto this guy who had worked with the monkeys for years. Uh, these are monkeys uh, that are misbehaving in the city that are causing people a lot of irritation. And they have, have catchers who catch them and take them out to this preserve, which used to be a plaster of Paris mine. Anyway, so showing up worked. I was encouraged. I've been rewarded for this kind of behavior over and over. And once you've been rewarded for it once, you're going to just keep doing it and keep doing it. And Yes, exactly. Like a bear or any other animal that gets food. <laughs> they're like, I'm going to do that again. I was rewarded like an animal, like the animal that I am. <laughs> so one of the things that I have always really loved about your books is the way that you use footnotes. I don't like always love nonfiction footnotes, yeah. but I love yours. And I'm wondering how you decide... Like what's going to make a footnote versus what's going to stay in the text versus stuff that doesn't like rise to the level of being a good footnote? Like how do you think through some of that? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, footnotes are really just um, me being self-indulgent because they're, they're things that I stumble onto that are so interesting, weird or funny or bizarre that I have to put them in. I can't not put them in the book, but they're enough of a tangent that it would really kind of derail the text. You know, it would 
if it was a parenthetical or a dash, you know, just really too much information uh, for people to step away and come back to without really losing the flow of the narrative, Mm -hmm. such as my narrative flow is. Uh, So I put them in a footnote. It's just me not being able to part with something that I found and I found really interesting or funny. So just, it's just me and being self-indulgent for the sake of the reader. (laughs) (laughs) Does your editor like ever step in and say, Mary, I really think this should be a footnote or Mary, this footnote is like too far out. Like, is that something you ever like work with that person on or? Um, No, she hasn't ever complained about a footnote. I think the footnotes are sort of viewed as this is here. If you're the kind of reader that loves Mary's footnotes, this is for you. And if you think that they're not interesting, you skip them. So she just says, no, she doesn't really, every now and then something in the text, she will highlight, this is, you've gone too far, Mary. (laughs) Because I personally don't have a good sense of when I've gone too far. I don't have any boundaries, really. (laughs) I don't have any sense of what is crossing a line. So I rely on my editor, Jill, for that. And she's been my editor for all of these books. All What are we set on? Seven, number seven? Six, seven, I don't know. Oh, She's, wow. I, I I can trust her to highlight things. And she doesn't do it very often. And when she does it, she's right. <laughs> it's awesome to have a relationship like that. I, I don't know if that's common for nonfiction writers to have like editors who stay with them for that long or. I think it's very uncommon. Yeah, I think, well, I think um, W.W. Norton, I think that um, when they're still independent and their editors are, I think they have a, a stock plan where, you, you know, you're, the longer you stay, the more. I don't know, because I don't get stock vested. Is that the word? It's good. The the longer you stay, the better it is. Mm -hmm. Something like that. But for whatever reason, there's not as much turnover. Anyway, she's stayed there longer than I think is probably the average stay at a a publishing house. And that's been great for me because I think it's very traumatic to start working with someone new. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I mean, I haven't done it, but I've done it enough in the magazine world where someone that you've been working with leaves and you have a new editor and you're just like, oh, what's this going to be like? Yeah. Because yeah. sometimes it's not good. So you, uh, in the book, you talk about, you talk about goals, you talk about macaques, you talk about uh, toxic kidney beans. Did you end up with sort of a favorite either plant or animal or one that you were the most like awed or impressed by? Well, I, um, elephants really threw me for a loop, which an elephant could easily do <laughs> physically. But elephants, because I was grown up, you know, I grew up with um, Babar, National Geographic, and um, Dumbo, Dumbo. So I, they're kind of like, kind of like gentle, bumbling mm-hmm. creatures, and I loved them as a kid. And five hundred people a year in India are killed by elephants. Not, 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 not always because the elephant is 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 intentionally doing something, but because they're big and they step on people or they get in the way or they're crushed. Uh, um, but, you know, and also they get into people's fields and on farms and people understandably are trying to get them to go away to stop trampling and eating a year's worth of their produce and livelihood. Uh, and so uh, anyway, so the, the five, the, they're just the, the number of deaths. Uh, but what was also really interesting is, is that because the elephant, you know, Ganesh is a, a, a deity or an avatar in, in Hinduism. So it's a, it, they have a lot of reverence and a lot of love for these creatures. So it's not an easy decision to, to, to deal with, you know, and if, if there's an elephant that's causing problems in a the community, they, they try not to kill it. There's a, I mean, there's a real 
love for these animals that is tied in with the with the religion there. That's it's really interesting, and um, it's also with monkeys. It's because the the monkeys cause a lot of problems in the city. They're very mischievous. They go through windows. They get in people's apartments. They've scared people off balconies. People have died that way. Um, but on the other hand, there's this Hanuman, who's a part monkey, monkey god, and so they they give them food as an offering. So they're both attracting them and then they want them to disappear. And the government's <laughs> like, I don't know what to do. Uh, so that's um, very interesting situations in, in other cultures. And so that was that was fun to spend some time there and learn about these things. Yeah, I think that's kind of a, a theme that came up in a lot of the chapters was like, people doing things that cause animals to then behave badly, but then not wanting to put the animals down or something because we care about them and we don't want to have to yeah. do that. And so like, do you feel like that's a tension that came up in other places too? Oh yeah. That happens. That happens here with bears in particular people. I mean, people love bears. I love bears. They're adorable. Uh, and if you live in bear country, they're around a lot and uh, sometimes uh, people, sometimes they intentionally feed them, but more often they just, they're not really thinking. They leave, say, pet food out or they don't secure their trash can. Um, sometimes they're actually encouraging them because they want to be close to them. And then, so the bears get used to people. First of all, they begin to see them as not a threat. And then they also begin to see them as a supply of food, tasty food. Uh, and, and anytime you have people in bears in close contact, eventually the bears are going to cross a line, whether it's breaking into a kitchen, freaking somebody out who then calls, you know, Parks and Wildlife, who uh, after a certain, you know, if there's been a couple of calls, they'll come and set a trap. And when they do that, that animal is put down. Once it becomes perceived as a, a threat, um, it's destroyed. So people, they, on the on one hand, they really want to be around them and they love them and they want to get close to them. And I'm no different. I, I wanted to, there was a bear in a back alley in Aspen that when I was reporting this book that was, you know, eating garbage from a bag it had pulled out. And, you know, I, I didn't want to back away. I just wanted to, I wanted to get close. I mean, I was, I don't know, about uh, 20 feet away because you know, I was in a parked car and then the, the bears came back to finish up eating their garbage. And, and I, I didn't want to, you know, the researchers like, you need to stand back. I'm like, <laughs> stand back. <laughs> I, I want to get close to the bear. I know how I know that that's bad for the bear and potentially for myself if I got too close. But it's a real tension. It's a real problem in bear country. And we, uh, we are expanding our range as bears are expanding their range. So the two are overlapping more and more. Also with with climate change, with mm -hmm. temperatures going up, hibernation periods get shorter. So for every there was a study out of Colorado for every two degrees Fahrenheit increase in temperature, the hibernation shrinks by a week. That, so that's more time bears are out on the land, interacting with people, competing for food. So we're going to see more of this, not less. I saw that the national parks are, I don't know if they're getting uh, stricter about it or if, you know, that's just like in the news more, but that woman who was not backing up in Yellowstone mm -hmm. and was approaching the bear and like taking photos is uh, a, a large fine, I think, has been levied against her as well as potential jail time, which I was like, this is probably good at least to have this out in the media yes. that do not go up to the bears in the park. Yes, I think people, be, you know, the, the selfie culture has encouraged a lot of people to take some risks they wouldn't otherwise have taken because they want to get a TikTok video or a YouTube video. And so they're approaching closer, even even like to the point of getting next to the bear and doing a selfie. 
um, in Aspen, in downtown Aspen, they have they, they they've had to pass legislation saying it's it's illegal to do that. You can be fined. It's also stupid to do that, but <laughs> uh, people do it, you know, because they want to. It's it, it, those video people love to watch videos of, of bears because they're adorable, and uh, and that's created more problems for the bears. Dog bears. Yeah, and for us. So I'm wondering. So we had the big pandemic and we're still in it. Was there anything about that that affected the book either like how, what you were able to do in terms of research or things you were able or things you chose to write about over the last year? I was so lucky in that I pretty much finished my reporting. I had to cancel one trip. I remember it was March of 2020 and I had been planning to go to Toronto to report on a raccoon situation there. <laughs> And they closed the border. And I remember, you know, it was March. And I remember thinking, because, you know, the, this had just started to hit the news. And I said to the guy in United Airlines, well, they'll they'll open up the border by May, right? I could possibly still do this if I if it's May, right? And he's like, hmm, <laughs> well, you can call back. <laughs> he had a better sense than I did. I had no idea. Now here we are. Uh, we had to put, we post, the book was supposed to have come out in April. And we put it off till now thinking, Oh, fall 2021, everything will be back to normal. It's unbelievable yeah. how long this has gone on and how little, myself anyway, most my, most people, well, how, how to what extent we underestimated. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Is there anything that you really wished you could have included other than the raccoon incident in Toronto, uh, <laughs> but weren't able to? Oh, gosh. They were, I'm trying to think. I had some false starts, like I was going to, I thought about including something on Canada geese and this technique called egg addling, which is kind of interesting in that it's essentially, I have to figure out at what point is it humane, like this, it's essentially like early first trimester abortion, like you're shaking the egg or oiling the egg because the, it, it's more humane than kill, you know, than killing an adult bird, but they're, uh, so I got kind of fascinated by egg addling, but as it turns out, nobody does that anymore because it's really a lot of work. You got to find the nests and then to uh, you got to float the egg to make sure it's not too far along. Um, can you actually do enough eggs to make a difference in the population? And a lot of municipalities, they just don't have the time and the resources for the training and they're just not doing it. I wanted to get trained and go out and do it because I thought it'd be interesting because, you know, those Canada mm-hmm. geese can be really aggressive. And I, you know, they tell you to like bring an umbrella, open the umbrella as like your shield. And I was picturing myself <laughs> like fending off angry geese parents with an umbrella. And uh, the whole thing sounded kind of mildly comical, as comical as bird abortion can be, I suppose. But anyway, they don't really do it anymore. So the, that was that. I don't really know anyone who likes Canadian geese. No. Well, they're just so associated with their sh- uh, and they do sh- a lot. Not as much as it's, I mean, I have a whole long footnote about goose sh- And if I can say that here, they, uh, like on the internet, they'll say three to four pounds a day. One person had them sh- 40 pounds a day. A horse doesn't sh- 40 pounds a day. I was like, where is this coming from? So I tracked down like where, where this is. And I found, I actually found one, one paper and there, and one researcher had actually gone out and <laughs> weighed the turds. <laughs> and he's like, we have dry weight. We have wet. It's like a, a third of a pound. It's not that much. Although in a whole, if you got a whole flock that's pooping 
I should have been saying pooping <laughs> all 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 day long. That that's a lot of goose poop. So yeah, and it's in parks and playing fields. It's slippery. It's unpleasant. But and this is another you know with with temperatures going up and and longer warm periods, fewer of these geese are migrating. They're kind of going. You know what? We can stay here year round. It's pretty balmy. I think we'll just stay. Let's not even bother to go north. So the problem is getting worse. You got more geese sticking around all year. Whereas you, you, normally here where I live, you've got a you've got a resident population which is small, and then mm-hmm. you've got the seasonal ones that they come in, they fly, you know, they fly south and they fly north again. So they're only around for a few months, but there's more and more that are sticking around. So there's more than you ever want to know about Canada geese. <laughs> You would be a formidable internet fact checker, I think. Oh, God, it'd be a never ending job, that one. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else you, you know, maybe would like to share about the book that we haven't really thought to ask? Uh, no, these are great questions. And um, I'm happy to talk about whatever I get asked. So this is fine. Excellent. Well, that's all the questions that we had. So I want to thank you so much for joining us for this interview. Oh, well, thank Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Mary Roach, for chatting with us. That was really, really fun. And we're so excited for her new book, Fuzz, which is out now. And with that, we will wrap up as we normally do by talking about the books that we're reading right at this very moment. I am currently between books, but the next one I am planning to pick up is called Dragon Hoops by Jean Luen Yang, which is a comic memoir and a graphic novel memoir about his um, time as a teacher and about an Oakland um, high school basketball team trying to make it to state. Uh, and my sister read this one over Labor Day weekend and she like immediately handed it to me and was like, this is like reading an inspirational sports movie. You will love it. And so I'm going to pick that one up now and finish it or and read it. That is Dragon Hoops by Jean Luen Yang. Well, that's very exciting. I am reading We Sold Our Souls by Grady Hendrix, which is about a woman who used to be in a heavy metal band. And this is fiction. And... <laughs> Uh, basically, there's a huge conspiracy, and maybe her soul got sold to the devil. <laughs> and um, Grady Hendrix is very good at humor plus horror. And I don't normally love horror, but like I love his writing so much. So I'm very excited to be reading We Sold Our Souls. And in conclusion, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen Zink. And if you have a few minutes, we would love it if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That helps people find us more easily. And while you're there, you can follow so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. With that, I am Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. <laughs>